All right, folks, welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. You're in the right place at the right time. Thank you for joining us. So first, before we get started today, guys, I just want to thank you all for listening, for your listenership. If this is your first time, welcome to the show. If you've been with us for a while, thank you so much for your continued listenership. It really does mean a lot to me um, just to know that, you know, I'm not doing this for nothing and that uh, some of you people out there enjoy the content that we put out. If you do enjoy the content, you could really, really help me out and help the podcast out by just doing a few simple things. And it literally takes almost zero effort from you. So all I need you guys to do is wherever you found this podcast, usually I post it on social media, Instagram and Facebook, wherever you found it, if you could please just like it and share it on your own, um, you know, Instagram or your own Facebook, that would be amazing. Um, That way, you know, my network only goes so far, but with your help and your networks, we can get this message out to more and more people and we can get more listeners and more interest in the show. So just take a quick second, guys, and uh, like and share what you hear. It'd be great. Also, uh, we do put these uh, up in video format as well on YouTube. And if you haven't checked that out, I suggest you do. You know, if you have a favorite show that you've listened to already uh, by us and there's a guest in particular that you're just like, man, that was an amazing interview. I wonder what they look like. Uh, Well, more than likely, we have it on video and it's up on YouTube. Um, I think we started doing that, uh, you know, after the first 20 or so episodes. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of episodes up there on video on the YouTube page. Now, um, for the YouTube, all you need to do is go to the mind ops YouTube page. That's M I N D hyphen O P S type that into your YouTube search bar and hopefully you'll find our channel. Um, and when you go there, make sure you like subscribe Uh, Hit the little bell so that you get notified when uh, we drop new content. And that way you can stay on top of all of our episodes when they come out. And um, yeah, guys, it's amazing. It's amazing to build community on those platforms. It's amazing to read all of your comments, all of your suggestions for the show, all your suggestions for possible guests out there. Um, And I can always use assistance and... um, insight and help from all you listeners out there who might have more experience with uh, audio and video editing. Um, I am only doing the very basics because I know very little about editing, but I have some kick-ass video editing software and audio editing, uh, and I'd really like to learn how to take full advantage of it so that I can uh, increase the, the quality of the product that goes out to you all. So if you all have suggestions for me or anything like that, just leave them in the comments of the YouTube page. Otherwise, you can find our podcast on Anchor, anchor anchor.com, I believe, A-N-C-H-O-R. And they're a great little website, guys. If if you've ever wanted to start your own podcast, oh, I got a puppy, if you guys didn't know. And that was my puppy in the background, little Teddy. Little Teddy is a white pit bull mix, and uh, we just got his DNA um, checked, so... We're waiting results to see what else he is. We have uh, some anticipation that he might be part uh, Great Dane as well because his paws are just so huge. 
Uh, now he's barking at my big mastiff, so I apologize for the sound. All right, folks, let's get into it. Uh, but for now, take a seat, take a load off, and let's get started with some Arturo Complex Beats. Okay, so today's good news story. As always, we like to uh, spread some good news and joy and cheer amidst all the trash that you that you all are um, shown through, you know, social media and the TV and everything every day. You know, um, these networks. Oh my gosh, they're just like spreading fear and mayhem amidst all of us, and I can see it. Uh, when I go out and talk to people, like, man, during, especially during, like, the COVID thing, like, so much fear, 
during during the election. So much fear, and it's it's got to be taking days or weeks or even months off of people's life just living in that stress. So, in order to help counter that. Here at Conversations with the Mind, we like to put out a good news story with each episode. And I'm just realizing, I forgot to do it in the last episode, but it was our first time back in a while. So here's a good one for you. Um, and it's from the goodnewsnetwork.org. Okay, the title of the article, it reads, Muscles can help filter microplastics out of our oceans without harming themselves. And then it's obviously talking about muscles like the little uh, clam not our um, muscle tissue in our own bodies. So pretty cool that they can help filter out microplastics out of the oceans. And I'm just going to read you guys the article because it's really short, really cool. Um, I'm amazed with how um, certain plants and certain animals are equipped um, to you know, naturally filter and uh, purify a lot of the damage that we as humans do in the environment. Um, it's really awesome that they can do that. And, uh, it's kind of weird to think about too, because, you know, if humans weren't here, would these, uh, animals and plants have, uh, these kind of capacities to do that stuff? Or did they develop those evolutionarily because of all the trash that we put out there? Now, I definitely don't want people to think that, you know, when they hear stories like this, like, Muscles can clean up microplastics or, you know, there's a number of fungi fungi that uh, can clean up oil spills and, um, you know, dissolve plastics and things like that. I don't want people to think like, oh, great, awesome, we have those tools now, so now we can just pollute the earth and not have to worry about it as much. No, that's not the point. Like, we all need to be doing our part to um, stop some of the behaviors that we have been doing, and I'll get into that a little bit into uh, the section on my thoughts. Um, but it's just amazing that we have these these tools, these natural technologies uh, through these plants and animals and fungi to be able to, you know, give us a second chance and rectify some of the some of the damage that we've done on our own planet. Okay, so here's the article. Instead of shelling out for a water filtration plant, mussels consist uh, mussels, Constantly filter feeding is being um, tested as a potential wide-scale application for microplastic cleanup in our oceans. Um, belying their humble evolutionary stature, the muscle can do something that humanity could only achieve by spending millions on equipment, and that is cleaning micro microplastics smaller than 5 millimeters out of the ocean. The voracious filter feeder muscles absorb microplastics and then excrete them while doing no harm to the organism. By the way, the spelling in this article is horrendous, so it's difficult for me to pronounce some of these words. Uh, microplastics are devilish pollutants that can come from tire wear, fracture off long floating plastic debris, or get pulled off artificial textiles and end up in the ocean via sewage. They're so small that often the required fineness of a net in order to collect them ensures that any marine life, even tiny ones, will be collected as well. A trial near the Plymouth Marine Laboratory in England is looking to see how many mussels it would take to make a meaningful impact on microplastic pollution. A blog entry from a blogist or biologist, another typo, at our EPA suggests that one adult mussel can filter feed through 15 gallons of water a day 
and that a six-mile bed of mussels can remove 25 tons of particulate matter a year. Amazing. The Plymouth trial is replicating an earlier experiment that placed around 300 mussels in a flow tank that fed them phytoplankton and microplastics. They collected around 25% of the microplastics that were in the water, a staggering 250,000 pieces per hour. The particles were deposited in the bivalves droppings, which the researchers say could be used for biofuel because of its fuel, uh, because it's full of carbon. Awesome! So we're tr- uh, they're able to uh, transmute or you know through al- alchemical processes turn this um, microplastics into an actual biofuel full of carbon that can be reused again <clears throat> without doing any harm to these uh, creatures. So this was funded by. Waitrose Plan Plastic, a giant program for plastic cleaning solutions funded by the sales of plastic carrier bags at Waitrose grocery stores in the UK. On the Plymouth Sound, the team monitoring the mussels keep them in clusters in buckets under which are suspended receptacles to ensure all the waste is collected and the microplastics can be disposed of properly. Trials so far have been extremely promising, and we're very excited about the positive impact systems like these could potentially have on estuarine areas, particularly in places where microplastics might accumulate, such as marinas, harbors, or near wastewater treatment works, says Professor Penny Lindicke, Head of Science, Marine Ecology and Biodiversity, in a press release. While nanoplastics can pass through the muscles' membranes and into their limited anatomy, the microplastics are too large to harm them at the levels they are currently found in the oceans. This has been a really exciting experiment because we always hoped that muscles would have the capacity to filter out microplastics, but they do it really well, and they do it without harming themselves. So, there's the article. Pretty badass. Uh, natural technologies, which pulls me right into the section on what has been on my mind recently, and this is related to this topic today. So I went to the grocery store the other day and was getting some groceries and, you know, there was, uh, I forgot what I was getting, but there was, there was all sorts of different options. There was the regular option, um, with preservatives or whatever. Then there was another option that said all natural. And then there was another option that said organic. And then there was another option that said, um, you know, mostly natural or natural and artificial flavorings and all these, all these different things. And, um, you know, it can get really confusing at times. And I'm sure that there's, uh, you know, a good explanation. And my wife, who's, um, going to school to be a dietitian could probably school me really well on the differences between those and what it takes for each kind of product to get those certain types of labels. Um, but it got me thinking and it got me thinking about the word natural and how we use it on certain products and say things are all natural, uh, and how that oftentimes, um, gets people to want to buy those things a little bit more because they're all natural, uh, rather than being what the opposite, non-natural. Um, and so I took this, as I usually do, I took it to a, almost like a metaphysical place in my mind. I was thinking about what does it mean to be all natural? Uh, and I started just pulling out random things, um, you know, in my mind and in my, in my visual perception around me and, and asking, well, is this natural or is this natural? And why is it not natural? And uh, why is it natural? And what I'm landing on, uh, which, you know, might be controversial. Some of you might disagree. Um, but I think 
all the way down at its essence, at its core um, particulate, you know, um, that we are all made of cosmic stardust, right? We're all made of the same exact thing found across the entire universe. Um, carbon and, you know, all these heavy metals and all sorts of different atoms and particles and molecules. And they're just configured in different ways and different combinations to make different products, right? Um, for instance, like wood is, uh, I believe, mostly carbon-based. Uh, humans are mostly carbon-based. Coal is mostly carbon-based. Three different substances but made out of essentially uh, the same things, um, all considered natural, right? So then we start to expand a little bit out to some some man-made things, right? And I still, you know, I was reaching this this uh, end point with all of these questionings that I was going through. That, you know, I think that every single thing in the universe on some level, is natural. Think about that for a second. You know? Car, a car, okay? It's man-made, for sure. Man or machine-made. And some people may think, you know, well, that just me, that makes it non-natural. It doesn't, uh, doesn't show up naturally in the environment. Well, I have to counter that by saying, you know, a lot of people still think about nature and human relations as like a duality, as a, a dualistic relationship where humans are somehow outside of nature um, and we need to protect that, was, that which is outside of us and anything that we make is outside of nature. And this is a commonly held belief. Um, and what it does is it affords us... Um, you know, some of the perspectives that have gotten us to the place where we pollute the oceans and where we throw trash on the ground and, um, you know, we destroy our Amazon rainforest and all these things because we somehow think that we're separate from nature. And even, um, you know, in a way of hubris, we think that we're above nature in some ways, that we can control it. Well, that gets us into a lot of trouble, more trouble than it does us good, I think. And I think there needs to be a shift back to the old ways of thinking around this, you know, um, the old ways of thinking and still in some cultures, they, they still believe some of these ideals that I'm about to spout out that may seem foreign to you, but the idea that we are nature, the humans are nature. They're natural. Uh, human beings evolved naturally into the environments in which they inhabit. They are a part of the ecosystem. They are not separate from the ecosystem. We are nature. We may live in these little houses that we create for each other, but you remove those houses, and what's there? It's still nature, right? You're still living on Mother Earth. There's still hopefully trees around you. There's still bugs. There's still all sorts of nature around you. You cannot become separate from nature, so we are Nature And these are older ways of thinking, you know, um, native indigenous people in the Americas have thought that way. Um, people still down in the Amazon think that way a lot of times. Uh, a lot of different cultures still see how interconnected they are with the natural world, and they don't make the distinction between the two. And so, 
if we were to go back to that sort of that sort of thinking, which is the sort of thinking that I tend to align most with, um, then it, you know it may seem like in a sort of chain reaction type of way that everything that humans produce is also natural. In that, if humans evolved to be here on Earth naturally in the environment, that everything that we created is it part of a natural process in which we create through our brains and then we create through our hands and then we create new things, we create tools to help us um, and that these are all natural processes unfolding over time. And it just seems like it's unnatural because we have advanced to a point now where we have, in, we have hand-built machines that can that these machines can build other machines, right? Uh, most cars these days are built in large part by other machines and humans help assemble them, right? But humans, you know, go back in the, in the, in the timeline and they, humans had to build those machines. So it's almost like a natural evolution for humans to build the machines, the machines build the other machines uh, for humans to use and get us around and all these things. So, so it got me thinking that, you know, everything is, natural in that sense every man-made disaster is natural every plastic bottle that we have manufactured is natural in that number one it is made out of all the same stuff that everything in the universe is made out of and will eventually um, many thousands of years will return back to those um, natural elements but that it it had come to be because of a natural unfolding or a natural evolution of creativity and ingenuity that comes out of human beings as we evolve. So it got me thinking that we go to the store and we see all these different uh, things and we say, uh, this thing's natural, this thing's unnatural. You know, that that over there is an unnatural plastic. It's an unnatural product. Well, you know, in the long scale scheme of things when you think about the universe um, it is all natural it's all part of the earth these products that we're creating here on the earth that we say are unnatural we didn't get those um, those elements to create those things from somewhere out of the universe they all naturally occurred right here in the universe and most of them right here on this planet so in that metaphysical sense i would argue that Everything is natural. And so that takes me back to our article today, you know, and how important it is to realize um, how interconnected we are with these systems here on the planet and these muscles and the fungi and these plants that do such a good job of uh, recycling and uh, transmuting all of our pollution and things like that back into products and elements and uh, biofuels that we can utilize and um, it just is awesome it's so awesome that these these plants naturally uh, because of maybe the the toxins in the environment had to evolve in order to have these new processes to do these things so that's just where my mind has been I went down a rabbit hole there and I thought I'd share some of that rabbit hole with you all right, so our guest today, very special guest, and uh, our guest today is Tiffany Banks. Now, Tiffany is a uh, PhD student at Colorado State University, 
in the social work department um, or the school of social work, just like me. She's one of my classmates. Um, and Tiffany and I hit it off right away uh, at orientation for our PhD program. Uh, we had a lot of similar interests. We ended up working, um, you know, we both had graduate research assistantship jobs for the first two years of our PhD program, and our offices were right next to each other. So we got to spend a lot of time just chatting it up and, you know, helping each other with editing our papers and, you know, having deep discussions about all sorts of things. Um, and I just thought it would be great to have Tiffany on on the podcast today. We have uh, some similar interests. You know, Tiffany is, uh, she's a very awesome person, and we need more people like her. Um, she is... Uh, specifically, um, what you know, specifically interested and extremely passionate about um, mental disabilities, uh, and I don't even know if I'm using the, the correct terminology there, but I'm, I'm using that because most of you might understand what I'm talking about when when I say that. And she would probably correct me and, and say, "No, they're not disabilities. Um, you know, they're they're something else." Uh, and they need to be referred to as something else. And so I apologize, Tiffany, if I am. I'm just, uh, for simplicity, um, getting out there to our audience so that they understand um, what, you're, what you're working on. And she, she works on, um, you know, on social work issues and social justice issues um, and specifically related to mostly people who may have some difficulty with everyday functioning, may have difficulty in uh, gaining or gathering resources that the community may offer, um, developmental disorders, uh, you know, um, you know, handicap, uh, handicaps, things like that. And I'm just amazed by her work because I'm, I've always been fascinated by how um, some people who have uh, some of what society would call mental uh, disability actually have some amazing skills above and beyond uh, those of some of the everyday population. You know, you hear of savants and things like that, and that just fascinates me. Um, so her work is extremely important. We need a lot more people like her doing work like that she, she is doing. Um, she advocates for these folks, and, um, you know, oftentimes they can't uh, advocate for themselves, and they can't do the research themselves on these um, issues that they struggle with. So Tiffany is a wonderful soul. I'm so glad to have her on the podcast today, and I hope you all enjoy the show. Okay, let's get into it. through conversations with interesting people. Our mission is to engage the collective mind piece by piece to bring greater clarity of mind to our listeners locally and across the planet and to contribute to broaden the shared experiential knowledge and wisdom of existence. All right, folks, welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. I'm your host, Shane LaMaster, and we are here for episode number 97 a very special and impromptu um, special edition 
type of podcast with one of my um, PhD cohort members, Tiffany Banks. So I want to thank you, Tiffany, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So before we jump into the topic of the day, which is going to be the mystical experience, um, I know that this is a topic that is interesting for all my listeners and myself included. Uh, I want to just ask you the only standardized question that I have for my podcast, which is, um, so the, the podcast name is Conversations with the Mind. And I just want to know what that uh, phrase means to you. How does it land and what sort of imagery or or experiences or stories or like, how, do, how does that land with you? Conversations with the mind. Ooh, that's a, <laughs> that's a deep question. Uh, Shane, as you know, the, the work that I do as a social worker is with individuals uh, with disabilities and, and specifically focusing on autism spectrum disorder. So when I think about conversations with the mind, I mean, there's just a, a real, intersectional experience for me. You know, I am someone who is neurodiverse as well. And so I know that describing what happens in my consciousness is very different than I think the social norm of how people experience consciousness. And um, so when you ask me like what that kind of means to me, I think a lot about neurodiversity and what happens, I guess, like neurocognitively for people who have differences. Um, and just kind of specifically thinking about, I guess, my, my own consciousness and my own mind and conversations. Like I, I do have <laughs> like um, a running dialogue in my head, probably almost at all times. Um, I think it's, it's something that um, makes uh, focusing on what's happening in the like tangible world really difficult. Um, I think it's something that um, neurodiverse individuals um, who experience different kinds of disabilities that impact executive functioning have, you know, anxiety um, and ADHD, um, people who have those kinds of uh, diagnostic profiles also kind of describe having this like inner dialogue going all the time. Um, and so that's what pops into my head when you ask that question, um, which I know is maybe a little bit different than perhaps where, you know, your mind goes or the mind of some of your listeners and thinking about um, these mystical experiences and what, 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 what we'll be talking about today. But that's, that's kind of where my head goes. Nice. Well, you know, <clears throat> I don't have any of the diagnoses that you mentioned, but I too have a running dialogue like all the time in my head. And uh, I don't think that that's abnormal. I think that that's actually pretty normal uh, to be self-reflective and things like that. Um, it's also, you know, I realize it's not something everybody has. I certainly have friends who are not very self-reflective and just kind of uh, say whatever they want to say without a filter. <laughs> um, but at the same time, like, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. And I've actually gone to great lengths in like my meditation practices to be able to at least temporarily should like shut off that inner dialogue uh, because it it's nonstop. It keeps running in, until you, you learn to step away from it. Or even when I do, you know, um, different types of meditation where I'll, I'll sort of take a third person stance to my own mind, like the mind is still running, you know, these thoughts and these dialogues are still happening. I'm just able to almost like 
sidestep them or rise above them so then I can see the larger patterns of the conversations happening within my own mind. Uh, so that's interesting. And you mentioned a, a really interesting term, uh, neurodiversity. And I was just wondering if you can explain to the audience and to me also, like, what, what does that mean being neurodiverse? Because when I think of, when I think of human beings, um, I feel like every single person is diverse from every other person, right? Like no two minds, no two brains, no two bodies are the same. And so aren't we all neurally diverse in that way? But also I, I realize that you're speaking about it as like an entire classification of uh, certain people. So could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I think when I talk about neurodiversity, it's definitely coming from like, you know, my work in disability, but just in general, the way I think about it is that, you know, we've socially constructed expectations of how people are supposed to interact with the world and how people are supposed to um, store and utilize information in their brain. And so when we talk about neurodiversity, um, you know, I've mentioned a couple different diagnoses that fit into that spectrum, but it is, you know, individuals whose cognition operates in a way that is outside of the social norm and that it impacts their life. Um, so I think, you know, ADHD is a really great example. They're considered to be neurodiverse when we talk about someone with ADHD, depending on how their symptoms present, right? I don't want to make super uh, generalizations, but you know, these are individuals maybe who have um, some issues with executive functioning, that's their ability to plan and organize and recall information. Um, people who are neurodiverse um, sometimes have short-term or long-term memory issues. Um, and, you know, we all experience these things, right? But it's similar to maybe like early Psych 101 when you're kind of learning about, you know, psychiatric uh, diagnoses get diagnosed when something reaches the level that it impacts your life, right? Like we all have anxiety, but not everyone has an anxiety disorder. We're all diverse neurologically. Um, but when we talk about people who are neurodivergent or identify as being neurodiverse, so this typically someone who has a level of impact where um, the way that society is created and the expectations that are put upon us, um, we're not able to achieve that without um, making adaptations um, or, or having some sort of accommodation. And that's, that's part of, you know, I just read a, a great book on the social construction of reality. And it makes a lot of sense, right? A lot of our reality is uh, co-constructed with others in our environment and people we interact with and you know, the masses and collective consciousness of everything. But one part <clears throat> that I really, and this is a strong word, I really hate about social construction. Social constructivism is this idea of a socially constructed norm, right? Like, like it's, it's a, an agreed upon baseline that everybody should strive to achieve at a minimal level, right? Because if that socially constructed norm um, didn't exist, then I don't think um, social, uh, neurodiverse individuals would, you know, would, would feel like they are experiencing problems necessarily because they're not meeting some socially constructed expectation, if that makes sense. Like, like it's that norm that causes people to say, well, something's wrong with me because I'm not living up to that or I'm not functioning within this 
in this box that uh, society has set out for us, which I really don't like. I, I you know, and I haven't I haven't worked with too many um, autistic folks like you have, um, but I have worked with a couple, and I've worked with a couple um, people on the uh, schizoaffective spectrum, and um, part of what I love about exploring that is not only how horrible Western society like demonizes those and treats people like that. And we just, you know, almost like we, we don't know what to do with them. So we lock them up or we restrain them or we do something because we can't handle it. Right. It's not that they can't handle life. It's that we can't handle them. Um, but in other cultures, my favorite part about these is that in other cultures, um, they, they often view some of these, um, uh, diverse individuals as uh, very gifted people, right? Like, like I know, um, you know, and I don't, I think this has something to do with neurology, but uh, folks with Down syndrome, like they are known for having exceptional strength, right? Above and beyond what um, normal people have, right? And I think that that's, it's not that they, uh, I don't think they have like stronger muscles or anything. I think they that their neural connections that allow them to access those strengths are enhanced in some way. And so I believe that, you know, even folks who suffer, you know, or don't suffer with autism, like they, they have exceptional gifts too, that um, I guess normal society just doesn't value as much as we should. Um, I spoke about this the other day in class that, you know, folks who have uh, schizoaffective symptoms in other cultures are not seen as sick people, but they're seen as people um, who are the shamans of the tribe, the people who can speak on the level of, you know, this 3D reality and cross over into the spiritual realm and speak with, you know, other beings, other voices, angels, things like that. And they come back and they, they transmit that information to uh, their tribe or whatever, and they, they're held up on high. So there's definitely some flaws that I see in our culture around these sorts of um, ideas around neurodiversity and, and what do we do with that? Um, but a lot of it, I think, comes down to um, you know, not enough tolerance for, for something outside of what this norm is supposed to be. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, I will backtrack and say that I think it's important that not all people with autism are savants. Like that's <laughs> an important statement that like, you know, uh, particularly people in that level three, um, that, the, that it is something that really impacts their lives and that within the autism community, uh, we certainly know that, um, you know, Temple Grandin talks a lot about finding that passion and, you know, uh, building upon that, um, but not everyone finds that passion. Um, and so that, that definitely, I just wanted to, to, to kind of say that um for your listeners um because i think that's something that's important to to be clear about but like um and i would go as far to say you know some of the literature that i've read um that uses critical disability theory to, to look at this social construction goes as far to say that like all disability is socially constructed we created a world that uses stairs. We created a world that, you know, has children going to school for, you know, six hours straight sitting in a desk. Like we created all of that. And so in that way, we created disability. Um, 
and so I, I you know I, I don't know that hate is too strong of a word for it because it is it's it's it impeding people's ability to live happy and full lives um, because the majority of people who don't you know need um, those certain changes just refuse to change yeah and I guess the last thing I'll say about this um, because I heard you say you know not all uh, folks find their passion you know and I think that that applies to all human beings, right? And, and um, you know, creating meaning and purpose in our own lives and finding that meaning and purpose and, and even getting through the days over and over again. Um, it's so important that we, we maintain, all of us maintain some sort of uh, directionality towards finding our purpose, finding our passion, and then going and doing that as opposed to slipping into the monotony, the nine to five, just to get the bills paid, you know, um, I think that's so true. I think that's a yes. wasted life. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, that's the last thing I'll say about that. Um, let's go ahead and jump into our topic for today. And um, so <clears throat> today we're going to be talking about the mystical experience. And that's largely what my dissertation for my PhD is surrounding is this mystical experience uh, and its application within the realm of social work and mental health. And um, I'm choosing to study the avenue of uh, psychedelics to access the mystical experience. Um, a number of studies that have come out of Johns Hopkins have uh, found that mystical experiences as occasioned by psilocybin mushrooms have, um, have been able to um, help various mental health disorders, uh, both in the acute stages as well as long-term stages. Um, getting people off their meds that they've been on for years, where they may only need one or two psilocybin treatments, and those treatments, uh, the effects can last up to 18 months, things like that. And they've found that it's, it's actually the mystical experience or the having of the mystical experience itself that um, helps to create some of these long-term effects. So people who did not have this full-blown mystical experience, um, they still had positive effects from it, but maybe not as long-lasting, not as life-changing, life-altering. Um, part of uh, the mystical experience literature that has come out in the last five years talks about um, a, a connected idea, but is separate, and it's uh, called quantum shifting or quantum changing, where <clears throat> someone can have a mystical or religious experience and experience such a shift in their um, in their thought patterns, in the way that they think about themselves or the way they approach life, or, you know, they all of a sudden, you know, decide they're going to pursue that passion, you know, and, and it creates this quantum shift that uh, sends ripples throughout their entire life, uh, changing it for the better. And so that's one of these um, sort of benefits that can come from a mystical experience or these quantum shift moments. Now, it doesn't happen for everybody. Sometimes they're more gradual, uh, but that's another thing that's come up in the literature. And the reason why I had you on the show today is because over the last two years, um, you know, in all of our classes that we share together, you've heard me talk about my project since day one. And, um, you know, over the last two years, we've got to know each other's projects quite well. And one of the things that is, um, has been a sticking point, not just for you, but for a number of people in class, uh, you've just been a little more forthcoming and open with me about your confusion around it is the, you know, what is the mystical experience? 
And I thought it was important that we had this conversation just so that I can sort of gain some insight into where the disconnect is, where the misunderstanding is, because um, I truly believe you can't understand the mystical experience until you've had one. You can't experience it full, or you can't, uh, you can't understand it fully until you've experienced it. And so that's been one of the challenges throughout, you know, hundreds of years is how do we translate what this experience is subjectively to people who have not had them themselves. And uh, it's still a challenge. And I'm finding that too in my own work and with you guys. And so after two years, you know, you, you came to me the other day and said, you know, I still don't understand what this thing is. And I'm, I'm like, oh man, like I'm trying so hard to, to, you know, bridge that gap. And so I thought we could try and iron out some of your questions today around uh, what it is and what it, what the experience is like and see if we can gain some understanding on both ends. Yeah. You know, I think the first question that comes to mind when you're talking about it being, you know, induced by um, a psychosyllabin agent, right? Is like, how is a mystical experience in the way that you talk about it different than getting high, right? Like how, what is the key differences for, you know, people outside of your field to like understand what you're talking about versus just someone's having a, a, a trip, you know, for lack of a better word. No, that's a great question. Um, so first and foremost, like I've had to look into mystical experiences, not just in the psychedelic realm, but also in the realm of religion and also uh, other spontaneous modes of, of realizing the mystical experience people often do through meditation. And there have actually been studies um, confirming that mystical experiences in all these different domains are uh, equally compatible to each other. So uh, people are experiencing the same things, they are reporting the same things. And so there's not much difference between um, the experience itself and how you get there although certain methodologies sort of take longer. So you could be a, a 50 year meditator before you get to a mystical experience, whereas uh, your first psychedelic experience can sort of shortcut that route to get you there. Um, so then you ask, what is the difference between just getting high and a mystical experience when it's occasioned by psychedelics? And largely, um, most of the research is focused around dose, uh, dose dependency. So. Uh, higher doses uh, of psychedelics will get you to that mystical experience more, um, uh, more readily, more, uh, I'm blanking on the word, but um, it'll get you there more often as opposed to lower doses. Um, and it varies psychedelic to psychedelic. So for instance, um, LSD, um, common uh, like minimal amount to take uh, is 200 micrograms, which is like two hits of LSD to get you um, even in the realm of being able to experience it. Uh, for uh, psilocybin mushrooms, it's right around a heroic dose, which is around five dried grams of mushrooms. Um, with ketamine, it is, uh, you know, depending, and this one's more depending on body weight, so, uh, and, and mode of administration. So you can do ketamine intranasally, uh, intramuscularly with an injection or intravenously or orally. Um, but in general, it's right around, um, I believe it's uh, 150 
milligrams per 70 kilograms of body weight um, to just get you into the realm of being able to have like one of these transcendent experiences. So when you ask the question, what's the difference between just getting high and having a mystical experience? Well, just getting high, um, you know, it, it it feels good. You know, you usually have your eyes wide open. Um, you're experiencing it while dancing, things like that. Um, and it's usually at a, a lower than that threshold dose. Whereas a mystical experience, um, more often than not, happens on a higher dose. Um, it happens, you know, with your eyes closed, eye shades, that type of thing in clinical studies. Although it can definitely happen in trance during dancing and and things like that. Um, I've experienced it during those periods too. Um, but more often it happens uh, when you are on an internal journey of the self as opposed to an external journey, just you know, recreationally taking one of these uh, drugs. Does that make more sense? I think so. I guess what I thought about through your research, I always assumed that you were looking at like microdosing and microdosing's effect on mental health, but it actually sounds like, you know, to get this mystical state, you're actually consuming even more than, you know, somebody who's recreationally using drugs would use. Yeah. Um, and Interesting. That's why, and that's why, um, you know, it's suggested that you do these types of uh, journeys with a guide, with somebody there to maintain safety. Um, because when we're in these altered states, oftentimes we we have a disconnection from reality, and we can, um, you know, accidentally cause harm to ourselves or others. Um, so it's it's important to have someone there for safety. Um, so yeah, microdosing is a whole different um, realm of psychedelics, where you take a subperceptual dose. So, um, for instance, uh, you know, LSD, uh, a normal trip dose is like a hundred micrograms, which is like one tab of acid. But if you wanted to microdose that, you would take one-tenth of one hit. So it's such a little amount that you, uh, you actually don't trip. You don't, you don't notice any walls melting or anything like that. Um, what you do experience is maybe an elevated uh, sense of energy, more clarity in your thoughts, uh, better cognitive functioning, better uh, eye-hand coordination. And they're all uh, really like performance-enhancing type effects that you would have and just go about your normal day. Like it does, it would not disrupt your day. You could go to work on a microdose. You could, um, you know, I've gone rock climbing on microdoses. I regular, you know, I do jujitsu competitions on microdoses. So it, you can do it like that, but you wouldn't want to do any of those things if you're on even a recreational dose of a psychedelic because then your perception is distorted and definitely don't do it on a high dose uh, psychedelic uh, because then your, your eye-hand coordination and all that stuff is, is uh, significantly impaired. Okay. So now I'm thinking about this a little different, mm -hmm. but I still don't know, because again, I, the, what you're describing, I have not experienced. And so I guess, you know, I, like, is this something that's just ineffable? Like, are there no words? Um, and I know that you shared before in your presentation that um, there's, there's a long history with like indigenous knowledge around uh, mystical experiences. And so, you know, if there's no words in English, are, are there words maybe, you know, in other languages or cultures that better encompass 
what you're trying to describe? And that's a great question. And I don't have an answer for that. Um, I don't speak any other languages fluently, but, um, you know, I've worked with uh, shamans from Brazil and Peru and Native American shamans uh, from the Lakota tribe. And they have incredible mythologies behind these experiences. Um, you know, the Native American uh, church that I've worked with, particularly, they claim to uh, have been doing their ceremony for over 10,000 years. Um, and it's an incredible lineage. So they have, they have a, an amazing way of explaining the journey and what it's like. Um, you know, I would assume that just like, you know, uh, Folks who, who live in Eskimo type cultures have like 50 words for snow, um, you know, and we only have one. I, I assume it's probably something like that where these cultures just have so much more experience with it that they probably have an entire lexicon devoted to um, spiritual realms and these spiritual worlds. Um, but I, I did pull up something online real quick that I want to share with you. Um, so William James, uh, he's a Western psychologist, very famous in our history. And he, um, he had an entire book on religious uh, and spiritual experiences many, many decades ago, um, and sort of seen as one of the forefathers of exploring this here in the West. And he said, uh, in regards to your ineffability question, uh, ineffable for, for the listeners who don't know what that means, just means it's indescribable. Uh, this little blurb says, according to James, the mystical experience, quote, defies expression that no adequate report of its content can be given in words. And I've had numerous mystical experiences and written them down and tried to describe them to people. And number one, I can't capture it all. Um, it, there's just so much information there. Um, I do my best to, to download it, but I, I can't bring back all the, that I experience and I do my best to explain it, but usually when I explain it, uh, it doesn't do it justice. It's like trying to, it's like trying to sit down with someone who's never seen the movie like The Matrix and you're trying to explain every moment of the movie and the plot behind it, but you know you're leaving out parts that are important for the understanding and then you get to the end of the description and someone's like, what? Like, what, did you, what is that about? Like, that makes no sense. Um, so yeah, definitely very difficult, um, which is something that, you know, in my study, it's a, it's a phenomenological approach. So I'll be interviewing folks about, um, you know, what were some of the circumstances right before their mystical experience. And I have interviewed people about their mystical experience. And again, you know, it's, it's extremely difficult to capture, um, but it's interesting when I talked like I've had a number of mystical experiences. And when I talk to others who have had it, pretty much everything I say about my experiences, they're like, oh yeah, like I get it. Like I, I've seen that same thing or I've done, I've been through that too and vice versa when they explain it to me. Uh, I'm like, oh yeah, I totally get it because everything you think that is possible here in this 3D reality that we call our conscious waking life, that just goes out the window in the mystical state. Like anything is possible. You can fly, you can dissolve into molecules. You can do, you can, you can see and do and be um, energy in the universe. And it's, it's amazing. Um, but without having that experience, like it's, it's kind of hard to think about yourself that way because we're still so tied to 
who we are as people, as individuals, as ego selves. Um, so it can be very difficult. And that does make sense to me, you know, because I, I have experience with a relative of mine who is a shaman. And I remember thinking energy work is, it doesn't make any sense to me. Like, I, and I, you know, I feel vibes from people in, those, in that like minor sense, but like I didn't really buy into it until I saw a sh them, you know, praying and doing some of their work over uh, a friend of mine's eczema and you know they're not touching him <laughs> he, he didn't eat anything weird and just in the middle of it he gets up and just vomits and he doesn't have the words to describe that but I, I witnessed it and that is for me something that makes sense I saw it with my own eyes of like they can do things energetically to your physical self without actually having to physically interact with you. Um, and that, that was probably one of the uh, most amazing experiences that kind of helped me make a connection here. Um, and so I do think that that's, that's one of the ways maybe to help people understand more is like, what has your personal experience been? Um, and I, I wonder if that's difficult, though, because of the culture in Western society that is so negative against drugs, where you're not going to get, you know, these professionals who, you know, work in these other fields to kind of publicly share like, yeah, I've, I've done some shrooms before. And like, so, so I sort of know what a little bit like, you know, does that kind of make sense? Like, no, no one's going to go there with you because no one's going to admit out loud that they've done drugs because that's still seen as taboo. Yeah, it's still a stigma. Um, and a lot of people who, a lot of people in, who engage in substance use um, in this way, you know, they're still in the closet about it um, because of those stigmas. Uh, one, of, one of my favorite speakers these days um, I was just on Joe Rogan's podcast. He's been on a bunch of podcasts lately. His name is Dr. Carl Hart. And I'm reading his book right now. Um, it's called, uh, I believe it's called Drug Use for Adults. And so it talks about, he's, he's a uh, university professor at Cambridge, a tenured professor. And he is out and open and he talks about, he's been a drug researcher for 30 years. And uh, it wasn't until his, I think, late 30s that he actually started using drugs himself after um, studying them for so long. Um, but now he's open and he's out and he's like, yeah, I, I use heroin all the time. You know, uh, I use methamphetamines um, and it is not disruptive to my life at all. I take a responsible approach to it and I use it to enhance my experience. And there are different ways to go about drug use. It's, it's not a drug that is inherently bad. A drug, if it's sitting on the counter, is not going to kill anyone. It's someone's relationship to it, you know. If they use it once, um, you know, it, it might not do that that much, um, you know, harm. But if you if you use it repetitively and you're addicted to it and you're dependent on it, that's when it becomes problematic, right? So, um, definitely, the way we think about drugs in our culture um, definitely ma it makes uh, studying these things very hard. It makes finding funding for these things extremely hard. Um, but there is a huge community of scientists here in the United States and in other Western countries who are out in the open and studying these and um, are really re reputable people. Um, 
In fact, the, uh, the largest nonprofit organization for psychedelic studies called the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Science, uh, MAPS, is um, they hold their big conference every few years. And last uh, 2017, it was in Oakland. And in 2023, it's actually going to be in Denver. So we're super excited to have them there. And this is one of the best conferences I've ever been to. I'm sure you've been to a, a bunch of academic conferences. This is like none you've ever been to. There's over 10,000 people there. Um, there is an entire, you know, they have the ballrooms full of uh, conference presenters and presentations with hundreds of people in them. And then they also have separate ballrooms full of like psychedelic artists and they have DJ sets at night for, for people who are attending the concert to go dance and, and maybe, you know, take a little something, something. Um, you know, you get to you get to see comedians, and you get to um, you know, it's it's just a really fun time. Uh, it's not like any other academic conference. There's a little bit of learning in between the fun times, but uh, we really do know how to how to turn science and how to turn uh, the study of of something we're passionate about into something really fun. Uh, so I'm really excited for that. Um, it's yeah, it's really hard. Um, you know, this is one of my passions in life, and it's a struggle, you know, being able to talk about this and have people look at me like, what, like, you serious? You're gonna spend your life like studying drugs? Like drugs are what put people in jail. Uh, drugs are what kill people. And, you know, I'm, it's gonna be an uphill battle, but it's a battle that I'm worth, or that I, that I feel like, um, you know, I die on the sword for. Um, you know, the, the idea of having freedom over our own consciousness and being able to alter it in whatever way we, we want to explore ourselves without some authoritative, authoritative body telling us what we can and cannot do. Um, we need sovereignty over our own body and our own minds. And that's a, that's a big, it's a big uh, social justice issue for me, is that piece, the sovereignty. Yeah, I think that that's, kind of the key to connecting it with social work, right? That the um, NASW code of ethics kind of self-determination piece and like, we should have control over our own bodies. Um, and so I, I appreciate that, that piece. Um, gosh, now I'm thinking a lot about like, how do you change that culture? How do you, because you had mentioned at one point that you know, when we think about drugs and we think about um, those kinds of things, we think about people who, you know, are, are incarcerated or in and out of jail and uh, people who have serious mental health issues and, um, or are homeless. Like, there's a lot of um, negative stereotypes mm -hmm. about drug use. And how, how, do you, how do you see, like, your work fitting into the overall um pursuit to change how we view and talk about drugs that's mm, a great question too and um i just want to throw out at you too uh, a little self-reflection exercise for you like with your work too on disabilities right there's stigmas in society about people with disabilities so how do you go about trying to change society's views on these people who are wonderful people and have so much to offer um, and, and are worth so much of our care, how do you go about changing that stigma, right? So it's, it's sort of a similar battle in that um, these, uh, these cultural 
thought patterns have been so ingrained. And, and with the drug world, you know, most of the stigmas around drugs have been unfortunately like um, driven into the minds of uh, our, our citizens through um, terrible uh, ad campaigns, messaging, things like that. Uh, when the war on drugs came in, um, it was largely like a moralistic uh, push. So they were, they were largely basing their argument on like drugs are for bad people. You know, uh, if you do drugs, you're bad. Drugs are public enemy number one. And it was not backed up by any science about drugs or their harms or anything like that. Actually, um, there's this famous um, uh, researcher in London at London Imperial College, Dr. David Nutt, who was uh, tasked by England to uh, sort of work up a profile on the toxicities of all drugs known to man. And he did this uh, and then laid it out in a very clear chart. And at the very bottom, the lowest toxicity were psychedelics, mushrooms being the lowest toxic substance that we know of. Um, well, the government did not like these results because the legal drugs, uh, alcohol, tobacco, were among some of the highest, uh, as well as some prescription drugs. They did not like this, so they defunded his research and buried his results for decades, and he got fired from his job and all these things. Um, so these, these powers that be, the political powers that want to push certain agendas and that have for a long time will go to any length to destroy people's careers who try and change things, um, who try and change the worldview. So where my work comes in, and uh, my work is really multifaceted. I have my research work going on. So uh, my research into the mystical experience and transformative experiences for healing uh, will hopefully change uh, or help change people's views on what these drugs are capable of if used in a, uh, an intentional and positive manner. Um, to show just that you know these drugs can be harmful if misused, but they can also be exceptionally beneficial for people if used properly. Um, I do work also in the political realm. I'm part of the Denver Psilocybin panel. And so what we're doing there is trying to literally uh, change the minds of legislators and city council members to be able to decriminalize drugs or even legalize them or regulate them or open up research opportunities or practice opportunities like they have in Oregon. Oregon just recently um, decriminalized or no, legalized um, psilocybin assisted therapy. So uh, we wanna be able to be pushing the envelope in that way. And I feel like the way to do this, the way to really change society's collective consciousness, and it's happening. I mean, we're seeing in the last five years, so many states pass uh, marijuana bills, pass psychedelic bills. Um, you know, Oregon just totally legalized uh, or decriminalized all drugs, which is fantastic. Um, so we're seeing, starting to see a shift. But what I think needs to happen is the more we push, the more we try and change these things, um, the everyday average person is going to be in, in you know, five, 10 years, going to be able to look down the street and talk to a neighbor and the neighbor is going to be like, oh yeah, I tried that psilocybin therapy and it totally changed my life. And it's when people are going to start talking to those in their own social circles who are like, oh yeah, I, I've done that. Like, and, and it really worked. Then they're going to start to believe in the power of these things. Just like you you watching your friend uh, get healed with energy, right? Like you hear about it on the news or whatever, you're like kind of skeptical, but when you see it with your own eyes, when, when you talk to somebody you actually know and trust and they're like, 
wow, this really worked for me. Then we start to change minds. And um, that's really where I think my work fits in is just we need to get more and more people the help that they want and then let them spread the word. And, and it's going to spread like a wildfire. Yeah, I can see how, you know, educating people is clearly like so essential. Um, I also am thinking in my head as you're going through this, like again, another piece of that social work thing is like thinking about who is overly represented in being penalized for drugs. And that of course is, is BIPOC, the BIPOC community. Um, and that, you know, in moving your project forward and raising awareness and helping pass some of these laws and decriminalizing and getting people out of jail for, you know, minor drug offenses is such a big social justice issue that I think ties right into this. Yeah, my um, actually just brought that up to me last night. Um, so I was telling her about the feedback that I got and she's like, well, if you give me a chance, I'll list off three things right now that are social justice issues related to, and that was one of them, um, you know, and I knew that too, like the incarceration rates of the BIPOC community are so much higher, um, you know, and yeah, I think uh, decriminalization, um, uh, what is that, uh, the term, like, yeah, just, you know, getting people out of jail on these small things is a, is a huge deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know ketamine isn't the reason why people are being charged and locked up, but it fits into this larger message that you have about you know, drugs not being the problem, the drugs not inherently being dangerous. Um, but without understanding, right, if we don't do this research and understand what, what are... Um, I mean, the easiest way for me to think about it is like in my research and work, right, there are people with certain predispositions who are not going to respond well to animal-assisted therapy, right? So like there's rule outs. And so, you know, if we're not doing this research, we're not going to figure out who is going to benefit the most. And so I guess that's my next question. And the next connection I need to make is like, who is this for? Yeah, no, that's a great question too. Um... And there are definitely rule outs um, within the psychedelic realm too. And largely the, the rule outs or the, as they call them in the, in the um, research, the contraindications um, that you would not want to take uh, psychedelics for. Um, they're still, in my opinion, lacking research in those areas. Um, and a lot of those contraindications are based solely off of um, sort of uh, assumptions that that researchers are making they're sort of you know being on the safe side and saying like I don't know but I don't think this is going to be a good idea for people with like split personality disorders or um, you know it can be uh, it can trigger uh, schizophrenic into into believing you know that their their voices are real which who are we to say that they're not real you know and that's my opinion um, so yeah, uh, there are some contraindications, some mental health um, issues that can complicate the experience. So someone who's more anxiety prone um, may tend to experience more anxiety during the experience when their reality starts to melt away into something else. Um, you know, there are certain personality characteristics that can enhance the experience. So someone who is more open and adaptable to um, 
change in their environment and change in their experience may be able to let go and just say like, okay, whatever, whatever is going to come in this experience, I'm just going to go with it. Uh, and they tend to have an, an easier time about it. So there's definitely mental health um, diagnoses that don't match up well. Um, but like I said, we need a lot more research into that. And also uh, medications too. There are certain medications that people can be on that will either counter, uh, counteract the psychedelic effect or will turn that psychedelic uh, effect into a negative. Um, so SSRIs in particular um, tend to have an, op uh, an opposing effect on a lot of psychedelics. So if you're on an SSRI and you take um, uh, psilocybin mushrooms, you're, you may not experience anything at all. Uh, they just kind of, they may cancel each other out. Whereas if you're on an SSRI uh, or an MAIO inhibitor and you take ayahuasca, you can have a psychotic break. Um, so yeah, so it's, it can be very dangerous. Uh, folks who are on lithium are not um, advised to be taking psychedelics as well. Uh, so just certain drug interactions, but there's very few as compared to uh, a lot of the other prescription drugs. Um, so that's promising that, uh, you know, it is available for a wider range of people. Um, and who is it for? So, I mean, I want to say it's for everybody. <laughs> I want to say everybody should do it, especially, uh, you know, narcissistic people like Donald Trump or, or something like that should be, <laughs> should be taking some mushrooms and chilling out. Um, but you know, honestly, not everyone should take it, but it can benefit people with mental, mental illness. It can benefit people um, with degenerative brain diseases. We're starting to find that a lot of these psychedelics are neurogenerative. So they actually um, create the brain cells and the neurons to grow uh, at more rapid paces. So it can heal brains and Alzheimer's and dementia and things like that. They're looking into that. They're looking into it for autism, they're looking into it for all sorts of brain issues. Um, it can be used for healthy people. There's quite a few studies done on healthy individuals and just, you know, people who want to explore themselves and explore their spirituality. Um, you know, I, I've even heard of, uh, I have a number of um, African American friends on the East Coast who I met through the Detroit Psychedelic Conference and they practice African shamanism. And I talked with them at great length about their practices. Uh, they call it urban shamanism because they live in the projects and they offer these, um, these medicine sessions with psilocybin, with other uh, substances to uh, people who can't afford it, people in the projects who are just really depressed with their situation and it really seems to help. But they told me stories about actually um, giving uh, certain psychedelics to uh, children and to infants. Um, uh, a number of the, the women who were pregnant said, oh yeah, we're, we're going to take psychedelics like as we're giving birth because uh, it, it will help with the, uh, with the pain, number one, and they want to be able to have that psilocybin in their bloodstream and in their uh, milk when they start feeding the baby right away so that the baby can get some of it too. I've heard stories of, you know, putting a little piece of like a little tiny piece of mushroom in a in an infant's mouth, like as soon as it's born, to sort of spark neurogenesis and help that baby's brain grow at rapid paces. And then in my um, in my work with the Lakota tribe and uh, doing peyote ceremonies, I've been in ceremony where um, the shaman's kids who are four and five and running around the teepee uh, will get some peyote tea. 
Um, or uh, there was this wonderful story where this, this couple came and they just had a baby and the baby was in the teepee with us and, and crying because it can be really loud and there's a lot of drumming and singing and the baby was crying and they gave their baby just a little sip of the peyote tea and all of a sudden the baby stopped wailing and actually started like cooing to the music. Uh, it was like in B and we're all like, whoa, that's so cool. It's like the peyote is like aligning this baby's uh, vibration to the to the ceremony. So it can be for a lot of people, um, but there needs to be a lot more research. And based on what culture you're coming from, the acceptability of who is allowed access uh, is a big deal. So here in the West, like we are much more restrictive. We, we tend to uh, you know, even with alcohol and stuff, we, we say, you can't have any until you're 21. Well, in Europe, like, when you're like 13, 14, it's not uncommon to have wine with dinner with your parents, you know, so depending on what culture you come from, too, that plays a big difference. I think some of those stories, and some of that data about brain growth mm -hmm. have to be part of this story, too, right, about for the culture change, because I know, you know, again, connecting it back to some of my experiences, you know, the first thing I did in my career was an early childhood mental health specialist, and, and I did infant mental health. And people were always arguing with me and so surprised when I would share that, like, research shows alcohol is the only teragenetic agent that we consume. It is the only thing that we consume that actually mutates genes. Mm you know, and, and if it's exposed in utero, kids can come out with genetic malformations, right? Fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is a diagnosable thing. When it comes to other substances, there's lots of other factors, but there's no genetic mutation. Mm -hmm. And people are always like, well, but it's still bad. And it's like, well, usually it's, 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 harmful to children for other reasons, right? Like you're living in, you know, a lower socioeconomic status or you're, you're living in, um, you know, a family where drug uh, use is more abusive than um, what we've been talking about today, right? Like there's all these other factors that create traumatic experiences for these kids, um, you know, low birth weight, things like that, but there's no genetic mutation. And so people always try to argue with me that like, <laughs> um, that, that all drugs, you know, were bad in utero. And like some of these stories that you're sharing here, I think fit right into that narrative where there is some indication that we've got it wrong. We've got it twisted, that we're, we're choosing to consume substances that are far more dangerous than the substances that we've put on the like, do not touch list, mm -hmm. you know? Because um, I think one of the barriers when I'm thinking about, again, like, social work as a field as a whole is the question of safety and like how safe can this possibly be? How do we know that we're not going to harm people because, you know, our code of ethics says, you know, do no harm, put other, the community and other people before yourself. And so, um, you know, thinking through some of the examples that, that you said and, and, and beefing that up and adding to that, I think is, is essential in, in getting your message out. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's amazing the, the social stance on alcohol too. And, um, you know, alcohol and tobacco uh, and caffeine are, are three most widely used substances in our country, in our culture. And um, 
you know, it's it's easy for someone if you, if you just want to look, uh, you don't have to look very deep as to why that is. Like, there's a lot of money in those, you know, um, these companies, Budweiser, you know, um, whoever makes Marlboro and Camel and all that stuff, Philip Morris, uh, you know, there's a ton of money, money, billions of dollars that go into this. And pharmaceutical too, big pharma, um, like these people do not want to be challenged and do not want to have their income threatened. And they are willing to kill, literally kill and assassinate people and, and um, you know, dox people and have people totally shamed in order to tear down their credibility. So it's not surprising that those have survived the way they do. Um, and it's going to take a collective effort on the part of the people to stand up and rise up against those kind of people in those corporations to make those changes happen. Um, Cause we can do it, you know, if we, if we really do. Um, I wanted to share something with you too, uh, that might help to enhance your understanding of the mystical experience as I'm referring to it in my project. And then I wanna make sure that I get to the rest of your questions and get them answered. Cause I wanna respect your time. Um, so this little blurb right here is a, like a really good little summary of some of the um, common factors associated with mystical experiences that people across the board, depending on how you got, or not dependent on how you got to the experience, they all report these things, okay? So it says questionnaire-based research has shown that the defining features of classic mystical experiences include feelings of unity, sacredness, ineffability, peace and joy, as well as a sense of transcending time and space, and an intuitive belief that the experience is a source of objective truth about reality. So there's quite a bit there. Um, and all those terms that I just listed off could probably be uh, defined on their own. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, those are those are the, the common features in most of the uh, validated survey measures that measure whether someone has had a mystical experience or not. They're, they're all asking questions right around those particular topics. Do those experiences continue like after the ketamine has worn off? No, uh, the mystical experience itself is, um, you know, it, it wears off. However, there's, so there's two pieces to this. Number one, with most psychedelics, there is what's called like an afterglow effect. So after the majority of the psychedelic, so all drugs have what's called a half-life. And that half-life just means, you know, how long it takes for the drug itself to work through the system and become metabolized uh, before it's excreted through urine or whatever. So all drugs have that, and that's on the physical level. However, there is this like afterglow effect that even after the drug has metabolized itself out. Um, like for ketamine, for instance, um, I tend to experience the afterglow effect for the next 48 hours after the ketamine wears off where um, they've actually shown that your brain is uh, much more uh, neuroplastic in that time. And you can use techniques like CBT and DBT to really do some heavy duty lifting and good work into rewiring your thought patterns, uh, behavior patterns, things like that. Um, afterglow for different psychedelics, mushrooms, LSD, things like that will uh, last for varying amounts of time. And eventually that afterglow too will wear off where you'll feel like, okay, now I'm totally back to sort of the same consciousness I was before I took the drug. 
The second part to that is, although the mystical experience and the subjective experience of being in the mystical experience wears off, oftentimes people will take with them, and this is also part of that uh, quantum shift piece, they will take memories of the experience with them that may help inform just their daily living and how they go about life. So I've come out of a number of mystical experiences where for weeks or months afterwards, like I just felt insanely connected to nature uh, where I would walk by flowers and trees and talk to them and say, well, you know, thank you. Thank you for the oxygen and, and just have gratitude for uh, animals and, and uh, things like that. And so some of the pieces of the mystical experience can stay with you and, and change just how you go about daily living. Um, but the experience itself fades. And I think the ultimate question for a lot of people in general, um, it's like, what happens when you die? And uh, I have an inclination that once you die, like death is the ultimate gateway into a long-term mystical experience where we all, you know, our, our spiritual selves sort of return back to the ether of the universe. And then we're just in it. We're in the mystical experience until we choose to, uh, come back as something else, maybe a, a star or a galaxy or something like that would be cool. But um, yeah, in different, different religious traditions uh, talk about sort of entering into that sort of state when you die. You know, the Buddhists talk about the bardo where you go in between lives and you get to see the life review, not only of your own life, but of all existence. And then you get to put together your next life and choose what the circumstances are going to be for your next life before you get reincarnated. So uh, pretty cool stuff. I just thought of a, a new question as you were talking, you know, as someone like me who isn't like a mystical kind of person, um, what is the, like, what is happening? I guess, physically during these events? Like you talked a little bit about neuroplasticity. Like do you have an understanding of, of that really um, complex, uh, I assume, um, like physical impact or what's, what's happening? What's happening in someone's body and brain when this is going on? Yeah, another good question. And um, this is definitely my weakest Point in my understanding of psychedelics just because it's so technical you know you, you almost have to have a chemistry background to understand but uh, I'll try and butcher it here for you so um, different psychedelics act on different neuroreceptor sites uh, some are serotonergic so they uh, they enhance serotonin in the brain things like MDMA things like that uh, I may have gotten that wrong but um Others uh, bring in dopamine, others bring in, jeez, um, uh, I'm totally blanking. Um, you know, some inhibit certain functions, some, uh, some make certain functions in the brain more prominent. And that, so that's sort of what's going on chemically and electrochemically in your brain. All sorts of stuff is happening. Um, in the brain, we are largely seeing that the connectivity between neurons is enhanced during psychedelic experiences. So usually we're either functioning out of our left hemisphere or our right hemisphere and our corpus callosum in between the two hemispheres is sort of that juncture. And um, our functioning just sort of bounces back and forth between the hemispheres whenever, uh, so certain hemispheres are, are associated with certain tasks, certain hemispheres are certain with other tasks. So creativity, I think, is in the, in the 
right side maybe or and analytics is on the left side or whatever so we're we're constantly sort of bouncing back and forth instead of uh, what people believe is multitasking. That doesn't really ever happen. But with psychedelics, what it does is it almost like opens up that pathway in between the two hemispheres. And now both hemispheres are firing at the same exact time and communicating on a level that is like a hundred times more efficient than normal waking consciousness. So if you think about our brains, like uh, they are sort of like filter mechanisms. We have 80,000 bits of information coming into our brains every second, and we can only process and make sense of about 80 bits at a time. So we lose a significant amount. What psychedelics do is they open up that filter, and we're still getting that 80,000 bits, but now maybe we're processing 8,000 bits as opposed to 80. Um, and for some people, that can get very overwhelming because it's like sensory overload. Um, but for others like myself, like I find great joy in being able to tap into what seem like um, like extrasensory perception and being able to, so you hear of, of things like being able to, uh, it, it's called, I think it's called synesthesia, being able to see sounds. Uh, you know, you'd be listening and, and looking at your speaker and all of a sudden like you see the words of the song like floating out of the speaker. <laughs> or uh, you see the vibration or, or you know, seeing sounds or, or um, hearing visual, hearing colors, right? How interesting is that? Like um, being able to uh, feel like you have like a telepathic connection with someone else who's on a psychedelic. Um, so these are some of the things that are happening physiologically. Now, there's some other theories behind consciousness and how it works with the brain, because I believe brain and consciousness are two separate things, but are intimately connected. The brain is almost like an antenna, in my opinion, for, for consciousness, tune into consciousness. Um, and we have within ourselves this thing that has been called the default mode network, which is this system in our consciousness that is sort of our automatic patterns. It's things that we have um, sort of gone over time and time again. So now this is how we think, this is how we respond to things, this is how we react. Um, and if you, my, my favorite metaphor for this is like, uh, you go up on top of a, a snow peak and there's no tracks. Well, if you take a sled down the same track over and over again, that track is gonna be well-worn to the point where you can't even get the sled out of the track after a while and it just follows that path. Like that's our default mode network is that solid path that we've worn down. What a psychedelic does is it comes in and it's like a, a blizzard, puts a blizzard on top of that uh, snow peak. So now there's no more tracks anymore. And now you get to rewire and change the pathway that you want the sled to go down the hill, maybe in a, in a more beneficial way. So the psychedelics tend to go in there and disrupt this default mode network just temporarily. Uh, it, it sort of uh, shatters that a bit for yourself and allows you to see other ways of doing things, um, sort of run through the simulation of if I went about my life in a different way, this way, this might be the outcome. And it helps you to like reset, give yourself a refresh and start to create for yourself new pathways rather than have them be conditioned into you uh, by circumstances. I don't think, I mean, to me, that didn't seem like any shortcuts. That made a lot of sense, particularly the thing about being able to process more. Because I, when she said that, I was like, oh yeah, do you think I've heard before that we only use like 10% of our capacity, right? Like, mm -hmm. and so, in theory now I'm thinking in my head, like 
oh, that must be why the experience happens, right? Because what we perceive around us is based on just that 10% that's being filtered in. And so you're opening it all up and we're perceiving our world in a completely different way. So that's where some of these different experiences come from, is that? Yeah, so you're, you're in essence, you're, you're experiencing, and it, you know, the term hallucinating is, is sort of the wrong term because a hallucination is seeing something that's not actually there. Um, so that term hallucinogenic is, is widely debated in this field, but um, no, really what a psychedelic is doing is it's opening up your perceptual gateway so that you are taking in much more of what is actually around you. You're seeing the things that your brain usually filters out. So you, you are actually being able to see vibrations and energy and waves and particles and you are able to see trees communicating with each other in the way that they do, where in everyday waking life, our brain sort of filters those things out because it's like, oh, that's not important for our survival to actually pay attention to these things. They just kind of happen in the background and we just let them happen. Whereas in a psychedelic, it's like, no, we're going to show you all of it. And a full-blown mystical experience, that, that experience of unity is really that ultimate objective truth that they're getting at there, that we are not separate from our environment we are our environment you know we're not separate from nature we are nature we're not separate from the universe we are the universe that we are all one thing uh even beyond the human species beyond the planet beyond you know whatever all the cosmos is made out of the same stuff we are all stardust and so you feel this for one for one uh you know, for one blip in time, you get to experience like this complete unity with everything. And like, I am not separate from any of this stuff. And I am so minuscule yet so important within all this giant machine that is working. You're actually making me think that maybe I am more of a mystical person than I thought. Because when I think about death, which is a really morbid thing to talk about, right? But when I think about death, I think about the scientific concept of like, you can't create mass out of mass that doesn't exist, right? Mm -hmm. And so I believe, and I find comfort in this idea of, of passing away and decomposing and the atoms that make up my body going back into, you know, the, the universe and, and being used in other ways. And, I, you know, I think that's kind of where some of that reincarnation stuff comes from and you know I don't know about souls or anything like that but like on a scientific level that's what we've been taught since elementary school right like ice melts into water and it evaporates into the air and like all of that um and that to me is so similar to what you just said I just don't think about it as being a mystic experience mm -hmm. um and I think just that because that's not the way I've been taught to think my entire life. It, it's a mind shift. Yeah, totally. Is. <laughs> yeah. No, that's great. I, I love being able to um, to hear from other people who, who are more scientifically minded and they, they find parallels between their experience and what I'm talking about because I think it maybe people get hung up on some of the terms, right? Like mystical or the term mm -hmm. 
God or the term magic or things like that. And we're like, oh, that's not scientific. Like you can't prove that any of that stuff is real. Well, it's not really magic. This the the term that you're getting caught up on. Like if you think about it, like life in itself is magical. <laughs> right? How the hell are we alive and being able to have this conversation through a computer? Like, out of all the infinite possibilities in this universe, this is our reality. Like, that is magical. That is mystical in and of itself. And that's really, you know, one of the things you take back from the mystical experience is that it's all mystical. Like, there's not mystical and non-mystical experience. There's no duality between the two. You come back and you're like, and you, you walk around and you really have so much more of an appreciation for your life and others in your life and your experiences that everything is beautiful. Everything is magical. Everything is perfect just the way it is. And it's meant, it is the way it's meant to be, you know? And yeah. that's, that's been a profound shift for me is, um, you know, re having that realization. Yeah. Well, I think, I think this conversation helped me okay, good. have that realization. Like, yeah. <laughs> You know, and, and hearing not just about the mystical experience, but some of the, the science behind what is happening in your brain, why a like a mystical experience is happening, right? That that left brain, right brain connection and, and all of that, that is clear. Um and you know, I, I, I think um, I think we've answered all of my questions. I only have one other question that, that I haven't uh, asked you yet. And I don't know if we have, have time to do another question. By all means, if, if you have time, I have time. <laughs> um, so after all of this discussion, uh, I think for me, you've definitely helped me understand more about what the mystical experience is and, um, you know, the question that, that's remaining for me is how do you see this bettering the lives of marginalized people? We've talked a little bit about, you know, the drug culture and, and how ending some stigma would, would definitely help with um, criminal justice issues, but are there, is there anything else? Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and that has been, for me, a relatively difficult question to answer over the last couple of years. Um, first and foremost, because I'm not what you consider a marginalized population. You know, I'm a very privileged individual being a white male in a white male-dominated society, um, and I recognize that. Uh, and I recognize um, the blind spots that I have because of that privilege. So it has been very difficult for me um, to sort of set that aside and step outside of that and actually go talk to people who are marginalized and figure out like, what are their concerns? And largely what I hear and where I think um, psychedelics can really be of, of assistance is talking about the PTSD and, the and all sorts of traumas that are associated with being a marginalized person, um, whether it's uh, marginalized for your sexual identity, marginalized for the color of your skin, marginalized for your socioeconomic status, whatever, there are traumas associated with that. You get treated a certain way. It has an impact on your consciousness and your personal narrative about who you 
tell yourself you are and who you are in this society and how you fit in with other people and oftentimes leaves people feeling less than feeling um you know feeling marginalized feeling stigmatized feeling um like they're not good enough you know uh all sorts not of feeling things. that unity yeah exactly and so yeah. where i think psychedelics can really come in and there have been plenty of studies showing the effectiveness of psychedelics on ptsd especially for uh, severe cases of PTSD through, uh, you know, work with soldiers who are coming back from war-torn situations, things like that, and just doing incredible healing uh, for them. And so I think psychedelics can come in and help marginalized communities by helping uh, give them these experiences of unity, of value, uh, where they have the experience that no matter what society says about you or what, how you're classified by anybody else, like none of that shit matters in the in the big picture. Like, you are just as much of a part of this universe as anybody else uh, of any privileged person, you know? Um, and that's really helped me uh, sort of transition and step away from privilege uh, is, is having an understanding that I am no different than anybody else who is being marginalized too. Like society may, may give me certain advantages, but in my essence, like I'm no different. I'm no different than a marginalized individual. And I want marginalized individuals to have that same experience that at their core, at their, at their essence, they are no different than anybody else. And that, you know, if they can hold for themselves that sort of uh, narrative story about themselves that I'm no different, I'm no better or worse, um, no matter what you say to me and try and tear me down and try and restrict me from things, I'm still just as good as you are, you know, and if they can hold that true to their heart as their objective truth, then I really think it can have a deep impact on um, just the well-being that they experience throughout life and, and hopefully not feel as marginalized and, and uh, you know, maybe, you know, I, I believe that marginalized change about marginalized communities needs to come from those marginalized communities. Uh, like they, they are the ones experiencing it. They are the ones that um, are probably more incentivized to try and change it. It also needs to come partially from the privileged classes too, who can recognize their privilege and tear down some of that stuff. Um, but it's, it's a collaborative effort and everyone, I think hopefully the psychedelics can just realize who they truly are and how much they mean to the universe and how much the universe loves them regardless of their sexual orientation or the color of their skin or their economic status or their neurodiversity or whatever, that the universe loves them equally as everyone else and they are so valuable. That's what I'm hoping psychedelics can do for us. Yeah, that's a tough response to process because <laughs> I know that, you know, the message to us as, as white individuals is that a lot of you know, racism and dismantling racism actually lies on our shoulders, that mm -hmm. colonialism and, and white supremacy is what makes those things possible and that it's our job uh, versus the people, um, you know, of color um, having a responsibility to that. But, you know, going further than that, I'm like, okay, in the mystical experience, you experience peace, and unity, you're experiencing the universe on a different plane. And then after this afterglow, you're right back in 
this tangible world that is built on colonialism and oppression on the backs of these marginalized communities? And like, how do you reconcile that? No, that's really tough. Um, and I'm right there with you. Like, I believe that it is the power structures that created these things that need to be responsible for tearing them down. Um, unfortunately, I think that the power structures that created them have too much incentive to keep those power structures going, to keep those advantages that they've created for themselves. Um, and it is few and far between people like you and I that believe that we are responsible for doing that. Um, and I see that in the drug community too, you know, people who are responsible drug users, we shouldn't be the ones responsible for changing the stigma and tearing down um, draconian drug policy and ending the drug war. Like it should be the people who initiated that uh, who should be responsible for doing it, but they're not doing anything, right? So we have to do it. And, uh, you know, we are more incentivized to do it because it means more for us to change those things than it does for that other class. They want to keep the status quo because there's so many advantages to that. So I think there's some inherent, uh, you know, it's tough, you know, for, for privileged classes, it's tough to look at yourself and see, um, you know, even if you're doing it uh, unconsciously, you're still buying into this system. Um, and you have to you have to look really deep and hard with a microscope and and tear those pieces apart from you. That's been really hard for me in in this program is to look at that part of myself and really have a desire to change that. Um, I'm getting better at it, but I'm not perfect. And uh, no, I agree with you 100%. It's up to us. Um, but also, you know, I feel like the majority are not incentivized towards that sort of uh, process. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the social justice issue, right? because these drug laws were created by white male politicians mm -hmm. who ha you know, had a lot of fears. It was based on a lot of fear. Um, and you know, I, I don't know, I don't have all the answers, but I know that um, um, I am in the opinion that that's the only way to dispel fear is with truth. And, and with education and, and sharing it out and, and getting the message out, um, which is exactly what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Trying, trying my best. Uh, you know, it's, it's going to be a lifelong challenge and I am, I'm up to the challenge. Um, I have been uh, sort of an anti-authoritarian type mindset since I was a teenager. And so I'm all about, uh, taking systems down and putting up more efficient systems that, that provide more freedom to people. Um, I'm all about that. But Tiffany, I wanna thank you so much for, for having this conversation with me and for being willing to allow me to record it for posterity's sake, for, um, for my listeners. And um, you know what you've said to me and, and the questions you've asked have been so very helpful for me in, in helping me to conceptualize my own uh, project and and to better weave in social work and social justice values into the work that I'm doing uh, it's been a difficulty for me because I don't come from a social work background so I'm trying really hard to to do that um, and uh, you know just want to express my extreme gratitude for you as a classmate um, you have been a fantastic friend and uh, colleague for the last two years and we are almost on to the next stage, which is comprehensive exams. And uh, 
Yeah, I look forward to, to moving forward and eventually calling ourselves Dr. Banks and Dr. Lamaster together. I know. I can't wait. Thank you so much, Shane. It was a privilege to, you know, dive into this more with you. Um, Cause I know this is, this is your passion and, um, you know, share, sharing your passion with you, I think it's a special privilege. So thank you so much. And yeah, I hope all your uh, viewers enjoy it too. <laughs> yeah. And eventually, hopefully I'd like to have you back on the show so we can talk about your passion, um, animal assisted therapy and, and uh, I would love it. That'd be great. All right. <laughs> we'll talk to Thanks, you Shane. Thanks <laughs> and stick with us uh, for some additional content. Uh, this has been Shane Lamaster with Conversations with the Mind. Wow, what an amazing episode that was. Thank you so much, Tiffany, for joining us on the show today. Uh, for all you listeners out there, um, like I said at the beginning, um, the best thing you can do to support us is, of course, listen. Uh, but the next best thing you can do, which requires almost no effort, is to like and share all of our social media posts. Share it out with your network. Let's get these messages out. Um, we need a breath of fresh air amidst all this... Uh, all this terrible media going out. So help us spread that message. Um, go to our YouTube page. That's the Mind Ops YouTube page, M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S. There you'll find video uh, video versions of all these podcasts, including this one you just heard today. And like and share and subscribe and hit the little notification bell on YouTube. Do all that good stuff because it helps us get our message out. It helps with our subscription numbers. And uh, hitting that little bell will alert you whenever we drop new content. So then you don't have to go searching for it. <clears throat> Pretty cool. Um, also, guys, we just launched our new uh, website for MindOps. So go check that out, www.mind-ops.com. All sorts of new content. Um, it looks fantastic. I'm so happy with it. Um, yeah, go check it out. Send us a message. We'd love to hear from you guys. All right. So until next time, take care of yourselves. Uh, take care of nature because you are a part of nature. And remember, um, you guys, just like, you know, like Gandhi said, you know, and I'm going to end this on a cheesy Gandhi quote, but you are the change you wish to see in the world. Um, so go out there. And if you want to see some changes, start it. Be, be that change. Lead by example. Don't just lead by the things that you speak, okay? Um, all right, that'll do it for today. Come back next time. This has been Shane with Conversations with the Mind. See ya!
All right, folks, welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. You're in the right place at the right time. Thank you for joining us. So first, before we get started today, guys, I just want to thank you all for listening, for your listenership. If this is your first time, welcome to the show. If you've been with us for a while, thank you so much for your continued listenership. It really does mean a lot to me um, just to know that, you know, I'm not doing this for nothing and that uh, some of you people out there enjoy the content that we put out. If you do enjoy the content, you could really, really help me out and help the podcast out by just doing a few simple things. And it literally takes almost zero effort from you. So all I need you guys to do is wherever you found this podcast, usually I post it on social media, Instagram and Facebook, wherever you found it, if you could please just like it and share it on your own, um, you know, Instagram or your own Facebook, that would be amazing. Um, that way, you know, my network only goes so far, but with your help and your networks, we can get this message out to more and more people and we can get more listeners and more interest in the show. So just take a quick second, guys, and uh, like and share what you hear. It'd be great. Also, uh, we do put these uh, up in video format as well on YouTube. And if you haven't checked that out, I suggest you do. You know, if you have a favorite show that you've listened to already uh, by us and there's a guest in particular that you're just like, man, that was an amazing interview. I wonder what they look like. Uh, Well, more than likely, we have it on video and it's up on YouTube. Um, I think we started doing that, uh, you know, after the first 20 or so episodes. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of episodes up there on video on the YouTube page. Now, um, for the YouTube, all you need to do is go to the mind ops YouTube page. That's M I N D hyphen O P S type that into your YouTube search bar and hopefully you'll find our channel. Um, and when you go there, make sure you like subscribe Uh, Hit the little bell so that you get notified when uh, we drop new content. And that way you can stay on top of all of our episodes when they come out. And um, yeah, guys, it's amazing. It's amazing to build community on those platforms. It's amazing to read all of your comments, all of your suggestions for the show, all your suggestions for possible guests out there. Um, And I can always use assistance and... uh, insight and help from all you listeners out there who might have more experience with uh, audio and video editing. Um, I am only doing the very basics because I know very little about editing, but I have some kick-ass video editing software and audio editing, uh, and I'd really like to learn how to take full advantage of it so that I can uh, increase the, the quality of the product that goes out to you all. So if you all have suggestions for me or anything like that, just leave them in the comments of the YouTube page. Otherwise, you can find our podcast on Anchor, anchor anchor.com, I believe, A-N-C-H-O-R. And they're a great little website, guys. If if you've ever wanted to start your own podcast, oh, I got a puppy, if you guys didn't know. And that was my puppy in the background, little Teddy. Little Teddy is a white pit bull mix, and uh, we just got his DNA uh, checked, so... We're waiting results to see what else he is. We have uh, some anticipation that he might be part uh, Great Dane as well because his paws are just so huge. 
Uh, now he's barking at my big mastiff, so I apologize for the sound. All right, folks, let's get into it. Uh, but for now, take a seat, take a load off, and let's get started with some Arturo Complex beats. Beats. 